right, Joliet. First, good to see you this morning. How's everybody doing? Everybody having a good weekend? All right. Hey, if you're new here, we want to welcome you this morning. I gotta, I, I gotta admit, I'm really nervous because my whole family's here today, and the reason why you get nervous when family's town is because they know things about me that you don't know. <laughs> and uh, but I'm glad they're here. I'm glad they could be part of it. Uh, you know, we are learning what it means to be a community of hope, but also hope in the community. I mean, that's our mission here at this church, and we believe that that this is a God who is for all people. He's an inclusive God, and so we're learning what that means to be together as a family, what his mission is about, who we are called to, and so we want to just welcome you this morning as you have, have joined our family, and just so glad you're with us. Would you pray with me this morning before we begin? Lord, this morning we acknowledge your presence, we acknowledge your goodness, we acknowledge that you are in this very moment. May our hearts and minds be receptive to your word. May your, may your love and your grace pour into us as we discover the different type of God that meets us in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Well, like I said, my parents are here, and I, I had a really great upbringing. My parents did a great job of raising us, and many of you know that if you have good parents, they will filter what goes in and out of your mind, right? out of your little brains, your little minds, and your little mouths. They'll filter that. And one of the filters that they placed upon us as children was the kind of TV that we were allowed to watch. Now, many of you know there was a channel that was really kind of like that kind of TV for those kind of people. And in this house, we don't like watch that kind of TV. Uh, some of you know me that you might know the channel, uh, MTV. And MTV for us was like the apple in the garden, right? It was just so tasty, you just couldn't help but take a bite of it. And shows like The Real World and Beavis and Butthead, I'm sorry, I said Button Church, Beavis and Butthead and Jerry Springer's Spring Break were like all the smut a middle schooler could want. And so my parents understood that this was slowly becoming one of our favorite channels, and so they decided that they would censor the channel from our subscription. Now... I don't know if you know anything about early 90s, early 90s censorship, but early 90s, 90s censorship meant that it was concealed but not canceled. See, they didn't know this, but we, we figured it out, right? See, here's how it worked. If you were channeling up on the up button, you were surfing TV, it would skip over channel number 27, right, if you were just hitting the channel button. But if you typed in the numbers 2 and 7, Wham, there it is. Back in business, baby. It was awesome. And I'll never forget the surprise on my mom's face one Sunday morning as we were getting ready for church. And she walked in, and there, all three of us, watching Jerry Springer Spring Break. Nothing prepares your heart for church like a half-naked booze fest by the sea. <laughs> and my mom said, I thought I canceled that subscription. Well, you kind of did, but not really. But one of my favorite shows on MTV was MTV Cribs. Anybody familiar with this show? Right, MTV Cribs. MTV Cribs was, uh, the, the, the cast would take you into the rich and famous houses of celebrities and singers and actors and writers. And they would take you into all their rooms and, and, and they were well decorated. They had four car garages with Maseratis and racing motorcycles. Uh, you know, pools that were, had waterfalls that went into the ocean. I mean, you know, just beautiful places. And, and I would always look at the, the show, and I, I, would, I would ask this question. What is life like for them? 
when the cameras aren't rolling? See, you get this, right? You've been to somebody's house. You've been to somebody's house unexpectedly, and when you get there, when you get there, there are clothes all over the floor. There are dishes in the sink up to the ceiling. Their kids are running around in diapers that are hanging to the floor. I mean, it's loud. It's chaotic. It's a mess, right? You, you've been in these places. But the beauty of someone inviting you into their home is that it reveals their true character and identity of who they are. I mean, that's exactly what happens. When someone invites you into the home, they invite you into the messy, the beautiful, the dirty, the loud, the annoying, the exciting. They invite you into all of that. Have you ever, maybe you snooped around in somebody's medicine cabinet to figure out what they're taking to discover what ailment they're, they're suffering from. It makes you feel better about yourself, right? Because now you're not the only one taking medication. But there's something about being invited into a home that, that tells us something about someone. Maybe that's what they mean when they say a home is where the heart is. When you invite somebody in, it's personal and it's relational. This morning, that's what John does for us in John 17 as we read scripture. If you'd stand for me, we're going to read from the message today. We're getting a little crazy. Watch out. But John invites us into this dinner conversation. He asks you to pull up a chair where Jesus and the disciples are having their last conversation together before Jesus is crucified and, 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 and suffer. he suffers. This is the final conversation they have. Now, the disciples think this literally is the last one because Jesus has been predicting his death, and they think that's exactly what's going to happen. There's just going to be no life after this. So they're hanging on to every word. Now, Jesus, in this moment, has washed the disciples' feet. He has told them what life will be like when you start following him, and then he does something that's a little uncomfortable for many of us. He prays. He prays in front of the, the, the biggest goober heads in the world, one of the most important prayers ever. He says this, Father, it's time. Display the bright splendor of your son so the son in turn may show you the bright splendor. You put him in charge of everything human so he might give real and eternal life to all in his charge. And this is the real and eternal life, that they know you. The one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent, I glorified you on earth by completing down to the last detail everything that you assigned me to do. And now, Father, glorify me with your very own splendor, the splendor I had in your presence before the world began. Now hang on to this, this phrase. He says, I spelled out your character in detail. I like that. I spelled out you, God, your character in detail. To the men and women you gave me, they were yours in the first place. And then you gave them to me. And they have now done what you have said. They know now beyond the shadow of a doubt that everything you gave me is firsthand from you. For the message you gave me, I gave them. And they took it. And they were convinced that I came from you. They believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the God-rejecting world, but for those that you gave me. For they are yours by right. 
everything is mine and yours is mine and my life is on display in who? In them. For I am no longer going to be visible in the world, but they, meaning you and me, will continue in the world. While I return to you. Holy Father, protect them. Now he prays for us. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that, hear this, so that they may be one as we, Jesus and God, are one. This is the word of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. One of the things we like to say at this church uh, is if you want to understand what God is doing, you have to look at the backstory. So before I can unpack this prayer that Jesus gives us, we have to take a look at an ancient world that was in a massive religious rat race. You see, the ancient people understood that for life to exist, they needed water and food. And back then it was plants, right? So plants and animals. And, and if you have too much rain, all of the plants would flood away. If you have too much sun, everything would dry up. And the ancient people realized that there were unseen forces who controlled the rain, the sun, the moon, the stars. They controlled everything in the world. And so they realized that if we could just give some of what we have to these gods, then they'll be happy and they'll bless us and they'll give us everything that we need. And for them, these unseen forces were always angry. You can do that with, can you do that with, Rawr, give me your best growl. Rawr. They were always angry. They were unrelatable. They were way off in the distance. But yet they always required more. And so what people would do is they would, they would sacrifice their animals. They would sacrifice plants in order to appease the gods and make them happy. And they lived out of fear and anxiety their entire life. Because you never knew how much was enough. Right? If God blessed you, how much of that blessing, if these gods blessed you, how much of that blessing are we required to give them? And so the question was, in the religion rat race, how much is enough? And so what would happen in the ancient world is they would get to the point where they would sacrifice their children. See, you're going to sacrifice whatever you love the most to appease the gods so they can bless you. So you're not going to sacrifice yourself. You're going to sacrifice your children. And this is what's crazy about God's story. Sorry, sorry we're talking about sacrificing children. I, pr I promise we'll connect it all together. Abraham shows up in the story of God. Now, many of you are familiar with it. God shows up. Abraham has his son Isaac, his one and only son, who is supposed to bless all the nations and make him great. And God says, I want you to sacrifice him. And I'll, I'll be honest, whenever we read this text, we get a little frustrated with that, right? Who is this God, this wacky and crazy God? He says, I need you to sacrifice your son Isaac. And Abraham, without question, without needing instructions or dragging his feet, loads up his son on the donkey along with everything else and goes up to this mountain to sacrifice his son. You know the story. Now think about people in the ancient Near East who were looking on the outside of this. This is what normal people do. This is what the gods expect from God, right? That you would sacrifice your children to appease me and make me happy. 
And what happens to us in the story is we make it out to be about Abraham. We say, oh, what great faith he had. Oh, he was such an awesome man. Who, you know, he would go and sacrifice his son because he believed in God. And we make it about Abraham and not about the new God that's showing up on the scene. You see, we make it about us and not God. We make it about me and not God. That's what the story's all about. We make it about Abraham. But have you ever considered that maybe Abraham was in on the joke? I mean, maybe he was in on the joke. He says to the, to the servant standing nearby, he says, we will go and worship, and then notice his language, we will come back. Notice he doesn't say, I will come back. He says, we will come back. And I don't mean just... Isaac and Abraham coming back, I think what Abraham is doing in this story is saying, there is a new God that is showing up in town, and we are coming back together as one to reveal to you who this person and who this God is. And what we find is that this new God isn't a God who is always angry and always mad and always needs your sacrifice, but he is one who relates to his people that he has created. He is one who gives abundance. He is one who gives life. He is one that converses about his plans for humanity. And it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It is relational. And so we get to the story today. This whole prayer about what life will be like for us when Jesus goes somewhere with the Father. Why would John invite us this morning to sit down at the table? Why would he invite you and me into this conversation? And why would he want us to witness this prayer? But before I can do that, I have to ask a question. Before I can answer that question, I have to ask this question, why? Is anybody else asking this question besides me? Why would God have a conversation with himself? That's essentially what's going on this morning. You see, I know in Christianity it's a bit weird. We believe that Jesus, anybody that can raise themselves from the dead has got to be a savior. We believe that Jesus is God and God is Jesus and the two aren't really separate, but they kind of, it's really confusing. But we believe that Jesus is God and God is Jesus. And I look at this story and ask the question, why would God have a conversation with himself? Have you ever witnessed anybody talking to themselves? <laughs> no, just me. I'll, I'll, I'll never remember Janelle and I. She already knows what story I'm going to tell. We were first married, and I was walking by the hallway, and I look in the bathroom, and there's my wife talking. And I'm like, man, I know we've only been married a year, but I didn't know I was driving her that crazy, that she's already talking to herself. My goodness, what's going on? So, I mean, I was a little freaked out by the fact that she's talking to herself. She's talking in a mirror to herself, and I didn't want to, like, scare her or, I mean, I was scared to death. I'm like, who did I marry? This lady's psychotic. <laughs> and I walk in, and I say, hun, who are you talking to? <laughs> and she said, you know what? She said, have you ever, you know you're going to have a conversation with somebody that you don't like, or you, maybe it's not going to go well, or you're just a little concerned about how you're going to come off. And so I'm practicing the conversation that I'm about to have with somebody else. Did you ever do this before? No. But I suppose it'll work. <laughs> Which is the point of the question. Why would God talk to himself? 
You see, for many of us, this prayer doesn't make sense. And the reason it doesn't make sense is because, really, of our narcissism. You see, we look at the prayer and we think that the whole thing is about us. It's about me. God is talking about me in this moment, and we miss out on what God is trying to do. We miss out on what Jesus is wanting to tell us about God. It's like somebody has written a journal article about you, and all you can do is see yourself at the center of the story. It's like Abraham, great faith. It's all about him. When I was a freshman in football, uh, the senior linebacker in front of me got hurt. And my best friend and I, we were freshmen, we made interceptions in a big game against a big team, and we were the underdogs. And I remember the article came out, and it said, freshmen play key role in victory over Marion Local. It was, it was exciting, right? And when I got the article, my parents gave it to me, I taped it on the wall, and the first thing I did was read. I wanted to read how great they were going to tell my, my massive world-changing interception was. I, I, that's what I was waiting for, right? This is what we do with Jesus' prayer, right? We think it's all about us, and we miss the complete part of the story that, that God wants to tell. I, I thought the whole article was about me, but it was actually about two peons not worthy to play on the football field who just so accidentally made interceptions, the balls that were thrown right to them, that actually helped underdogs win the game. And the story was about an unexpected win and a team that worked together, right? So this morning, we, we enter into this prayer, and we think prayer is about this prayer is about me. But what Jesus wants to do in the very performance of the prayer is say, it's not about me, it's about we. It's about we. So we go back to the original question. Why does John want you at the table this morning? Why does he want you at the final moments of Jesus' life? And why does he want you to hear this prayer? Because he wants us to know that eternal life and, 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 and believing, all of that resolves itself in relationship. Jesus says this. He says, I have spelled out your very character in detail. I have spelled out your very character in detail. And that's exactly what the prayer is doing today. Is This is about a God who shows up in our midst. And he wants to tell us that he relates to you one-on-one and as a body of believers, and you will not go through this alone. That in the midst of your brokenness, this is a God who shows up and loves you and walks alongside you and says, I am with you right now. We will do this as one. Just as the, the Father and I are one. And you know what this relationship is all about? You know what the we is all about? It's about grace. I know we hear this word grace a lot in the church. But I think we don't understand what grace is really about. You see, grace is not autonomous. Grace cannot exist without the other. We think God's grace is all about me, but it's about we. You see, grace cannot exist without the other. You see, a lot of times we'll say, by grace you're saved alone, but grace left alone will never save anyone. You see, we think that you have to understand that hate cannot exist without somebody else to hate. Violence cannot be perpetrated without somebody else to, to violate. 
Love cannot exist without someone else to love. That's why you and me and everyone else was created in the first place. We were created out of love because God couldn't contain it in himself. What a beautiful story. But if grace is left in a solitary state, it becomes stagnant. Grace was meant to be lived in a relationship. It is expressed among each other. It is expressed in relationship with God. And it is expressed in how we relate to the world. I love Jesus' words here in this prayer. He says, I pray that they may be one as the Father and I are one. I want to interchange some words this morning. This idea of oneness, this idea of relationship is about grace. It's about unity. So what if grace, which is unity, what if unity is the new economy of God's grace? What if grace, what if believing in Jesus is about we, not me? You see, apart from Christ, you are nobody, but alive in Christ, you become part of somebody. Somebody. And where does grace get expressed? The church. You see, I love it when people say, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. Can I tell you, and I've said this before, and I've offended people when I say it, but I don't care if I offend you again. You cannot exist as a Christian apart from the church. You can't. You, do you understand that the church is the great rehearsal of grace? That's really a good line. You should write that down for all two of you taking notes today. The, <laughs> the church is the great rehearsal of grace. You see, when a church decides that they were going to house a homeless mom and her baby in the church, that's grace. When a board member on our church decides that they will take mothers around to babies' appointments because they don't have cars, even though her husband is in the hospital, that's what we call grace. When a church gathers together and decides that they are going to clothe a community for free, grace is worn. When a couple who mows our grass for next to nothing and does it sometimes twice a week, even growing grass is evidence of grace. When disagreements happen in the church, and I know we don't have those here, we are, we are exactly what Jesus is talking about today. When we have grievances, when we have problems in the church, when those parties gather together, grace is the guide. When people gather weekly in homes to share and to eat together, grace is served. When people become followers of Jesus because they decide that they're going to forgive somebody who hurt them, grace becomes the empowering force. When we have new people who are meeting Jesus for the first time, the story of grace is told as a new beginning. Grace can only happen in the context of we, not me. So this prayer this morning is all about us together.
one. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's good. And you're going to ask me the question because you're so studious today. I can just hear you asking the question. If, if the church is a movable, relational, thriving body, where is that grace aimed? You see, grace is not just the way we relate in the church, but it's the way that we relate to the world. You see, God's intention for unity was not just that the church and his followers would be united, but that the entire world would be united under the head of Christ. And so what we get is that grace is the new exchange rate and the economy of inclusivity. I love that. Grace is the new exchange rate and the economy of inclusivity. That stupid coworker that drives you nuts every day when you see him. The person that cuts you off in traffic and gives you the middle finger. The person that makes you cringe every moment you see them. Some of you be dipping in the aisles at the grocery store so you don't have to see that other person. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, those of you laughing. Those annoying people that God put in your life for some stupid reason. It's also grace. Also we can be united. Also you can become an expression of his love and his mercy to the world around us. This is what Jesus' prayer is today. Not only is it that we as a church continue to participate in the great rehearsal of grace, but this is how we relate to everybody that we deem as enemy. Not a whole lot of amens on that one. <laughs> you see, everyone, everyone, and as you often hear pastors say, the word everyone in the Greek means all people. Everyone is a target of God's grace. Every one of you is marked with God's grace. And that's how we are called to live in the world. This is what God's prayer is for us today. Can I pray for you this morning? Lord, we give thanks for your goodness to us. We give thanks for a God who meets us in this very moment, who steps down into history and gets in our face and says, hello, I'm here. So beautiful. So we thank you that you are a God that relates to us in a personal way, in a relational way, and that we are not only called to, to relate with you, but with each other as a community that is moving toward this beautiful word called hope, which is grace. Lord, I pray that our, our mission this week as we go out is to see those around us as targets of grace. That every person, whether we love them or like them, is called to, be, to, to experience the goodness of your grace. So we love you, we praise you, and in this very moment we acknowledge your grace in these elements. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things we do here as a church every week is we participate in the table. And just like John, you are all invited. We believe that if you are searching after God, even if you have questions or you may not understand, you are invited to this very table. So for those of you serving this morning, would you come forward? We believe that communion joins us in God's grace, that, it, that eating and partaking from the body is an experience of his love.
And so this morning, if you want to respond to this message, that is exactly what we are asking you to do, is to come forward and eat from the table. This is our response to what God is challenging you to do in your life. The other thing is we would like for you, as you sit down and you reflect, if you're new today, let us know. Uh, check the Connect card in the back. If you're following Christ for the first time, we would love to hear your story. Make sure you check that and put that in the offering plate when it comes around. But this is your time to come forward this morning and experience the God who loves you.